0: as we carry on here, it's important to sort of recap what we've gone over the last couple of weeks as we started the book of Galatians. So if you're watching a TV show, you might hear someone with a much cooler voice than me say something like, previously in Galatians. Um, And uh, if we had all that stuff, maybe we'd do that and have someone say that. Maybe not. I don't know. But... I always kind of feel like I'm that guy at the beginning of every sermon after the first sermon. I love the first sermon of every series because I don't have to recover any old material, right? But then every week after that, I feel like that guy previously in Galatians. Um, So that's where we're at. This is what this is, all right? So here we go. What have we seen so far? We have a letter that's written by Paul, the Apostle okay and he's not one of the original apostles who were the disciples who walked with Jesus during his ministry before the cross but rather Paul was a persecutor of Christians after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus as this Faith in Jesus, what was called the way, uh, because it wasn't just another religion. It wasn't viewed as a religion. It was viewed really almost as a cult uh, of these people who they were kind of Jews, but they're like, they're going off the deep end. They're saying the law isn't what gets us in. It's about faith in this guy named Jesus who died on the cross and they're saying rose from the dead and he was seen by like. 500 people, so they say, this way that people were living in, in Jesus, Paul was a persecutor of anyone who said they were living in that way. Uh, But then he became an apostle uh, by Jesus' own appointment. And that's kind of the case that Paul's building here in chapter one of Galatians is that he wasn't a guy who someone said, oh, you know what? You've really learned the gospel really well. Why don't you come up here in front of everybody? We're going to lay hands on you and call you an apostle and send you out. No, rather, it was Jesus himself who shows up. In space and time, okay? This isn't just a vision. It's not just a dream that Paul had. Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus. He literally, audibly speaks to Paul on the road to Damascus. And what we see through the rest of the book of Acts, every time that Paul talks about what happened to him, as we see through the rest of Paul's letters, that it was Jesus himself Who revealed himself to Paul, not just as, hey, I'm Jesus, but hey, I am Jesus, the Christ, the one whom you've been persecuting. I am the answer to everything you've been searching for in the Old Testament. Because Paul was a Pharisee, all right? And since being made a Christian... Uh, hear that, being made a Christian, Paul has become even more on fire for the message of the gospel that he received from Jesus than he ever was in trying to stop it before his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. So then Paul goes on what we know as the first missionary journeys, right? We said last week, the first overseas missionary journey, he takes the gospel message on a boat across the sea, and one of the places that he goes and spends time in is what we know today as modern-day Turkey, but what they called then an area of Galatia. And there, Paul was instrumental over a long period of time of not planting just one, but several different churches in this area called Galatia. So why is that important? Because Paul wasn't just rocking up for the the gospel according to Paul tour, right? He didn't just rock up in this area called Galatia, you know, two nights only come and see Paul as he speaks the gospel. And like Paul comes up, he like gets up in front of everybody, lays it all down, that's the gospel, and then leaves town. Like many evangelists of our day, like I said, they blow in, they blow up, and they blow out. That's not what Paul did. Paul came, and like we were talking about earlier, he did life with these people. It wasn't just a one-time sermon that he spoke, and people were like, oh, wow, you blew my mind. And now we're going to like follow you and buy your books and send you money so you can keep doing this. Paul moved into the area for a while. And day in and day out, he met with these people. He preached in the synagogues. He preached in the market squares. He met with them in their homes, and he taught them the same gospel that Jesus himself taught to Paul. And then after churches had been established and again not like okay we got a few people you 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 now you I gave you some letters you have the Torah the Old Testament you've heard about Jesus you good all right write me if you have any questions I'm out of here not what happened? He stuck around until the church was established. What did that mean? That mean there were other men, able-bodied instructed men who met the qualifications that we find in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus who were able to preach the gospel, who were living the gospel, who then were charged with the leadership of these churches and then Paul would move on. And this happened several times, not just one. How do we know? First part of the book here in chapter one to the churches that are in Galatia. This isn't just a letter to one individual church that Paul planted. This is to churches, multiple churches that Paul planted and helped establish in this area called Galatia. He gets home. And if you work all the timelines out, presumably only about a year after Paul returns home to his home base in Antioch, Paul receives word that these guys called Judaizers who were just Jewish people who said they were Christians but really weren't moved into the area and started teaching these Galatian churches that Paul had planted and established that it wasn't Jesus end of story. It was Jesus plus works of the law that we are made righteous and holy and acceptable to God. And Paul blows a gasket. Paul's not just mildly concerned. He's not just sort of, you know, maybe I should write these guys a letter just to kind of clear the air. Paul is ticked. I used more colorful language last week. I felt convicted about that. I'm going to try and clean it up this week. All right. (laughs) Paul is ticked. He blows. Literally, I mean, and I explained this last week. You almost have to see Paul receiving word and saying, say what? And immediately going, grabbing pen and parchment and beginning to write this letter to the Galatians. Because that is how disturbed he is. Now, again, as we ended last week, what did we say? Paul's not ticked at the Galatians. This is a very loving and pastoral letter. It's a strong letter. And Paul is ticked. But he's not ticked at the Galatians. He loves the Galatians. Who is he ticked off at? It's the Judaizers. These guys who are coming in and saying it's Jesus plus something else. Which is one of the most dangerous messages that anyone who has faith in Christ could ever receive into their heart. That Jesus plus anything else equals justification before God. If you get that, then you have missed the boat, right? And so Paul writes this letter to combat the idea that had been received in these churches that there was preaching as the gospel that wasn't correct or at least incomplete. That's what the Judaizers were saying about Paul's message. And so people... These Judaizers, they come in, they try to teach observance to the Jewish law and ritual. What does that mean? It's all the don't touch, don't taste, don't uh, do this stuff of Jewish law. And they're trying to say that you have to not only have faith in Christ, but also observe all of the Jewish rituals, which included circumcision. And so here these guys. So they're not just saying, you know, try to keep the Jewish law. They're saying you must keep all of it. Right. In addition to the atonement of Christ on the cross, this is one of the most pervasive and dangerous messages that anyone could receive. Anything that says Jesus plus anything else equals justification with God has missed the boat and does not believe the gospel. If you do not believe the gospel, the true gospel, the gospel that Paul preached, then your faith Is in something else entirely. And that is Paul's point here. That if you try to add anything to the work of Christ on the cross. You've missed the gospel completely. Because the gospel is Jesus period. That everything we need. For godliness and righteousness is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. Now, is the law bad? Is the law evil? Should we rip the Old Testament out of our Bibles and throw it away? No! And that's not what Paul is saying either. But what Paul is saying is that the law that God commands, even by keeping it, has no power to atone for your sin. It has no power to connect you to God. It has no power to change your life. The only thing that has the power to change you is the gospel, because what the law demands, it cannot provide. And the law has no power to make us righteous. It is a diagnosis, it is not the cure. That means what? We look at the law to see how holy and how righteous God is, and how depraved and how sinful. We are. And we can only come to one conclusion. I need someone to rescue me. For I am utterly hopeless on my own. That's what the law does for us. There's three uses of the law. We don't have time to get into that today. We will get into that as the days and the months and the years go on. All right. But you can go look that up for yourself, three uses of the law. That'll be a fun little theological study for you this this week. (laughs) This same pervasive message that Paul's combating in Galatians is evident today. In the churches of today, in evangelicalism as a whole, in the world of Christianity today. And we know it as Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. There's another thing you can go Google and have fun with this week. Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. And also in legalistic circles where strict adherence and obedience to all kinds of rule, both rules both in the Old Testament and then just extra fluff stuff that people make up along the way because they're afraid of their own sin in their own life and they don't want to own up to it. Right? So we make up all kinds of rules that are required in order to really be saved or to really be in. And that's essentially what the Judaizers did. They showed up and they go, Yeah, you guys think you're Christians, but really, you're not really in yet. Right? I mean, how disheartening, number one. But number two, how confusing. And that's why Paul is writing this letter. There's only one gospel, and it goes kind of like this. God is holy and perfect. We are all sinners. Jesus saves us, and then Jesus sends us. That is the full circle of the gospel. God is holy and perfect. We are all sinners. Jesus alone can save us, and then Jesus will send us. You see, rescue from sin and connection to God as your Heavenly Father can only be accomplished by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And it is all done for the glory of God alone. That is what it's for. And the story is repeated every single day in our lives because the gospel is not just what gets us in. The gospel is what keeps us in. The gospel is what delivers us safe and sound. In the end, because the gospel has saved us from the penalty of sin, it is saving us from the power of sin, and it will save us from the presence of sin. The gospel did not just happen, it is happening. And that's why we have, amen, that's why we have to be reminded of it every single day. That's why we're going to spend eight weeks together in this gospel primer, learning not only what the gospel is, but how the gospel affects every aspect of our daily lives. How does the gospel affect my relationship with you and your relationship with me? How does the gospel, as pastor and, and, and member of a church, what about as brother and sister in Christ? What about as fellow co heirs with Christ? What about fellow missionaries in our community? How does the gospel affect all those different realms of our relationships? How does the gospel affect your marriage or your dating relationships or your singleness or your parenting? How does the gospel affect your work life? I mean, what is your workplace? life all about? Is it simply how God has chosen to provide for you? Or is your workplace a gospel mission field that God has purposefully and sovereignly placed you in to be a light and an example of the gospel message that you have heard and responded to? That you are meant to proclaim both in word and in deed in your workplace. That doesn't mean necessarily that you get up every morning and say, "Right, guys, everyone listen up. If you turn to Galatians chapter 1, I'm just going to regurgitate everything my pastor said on Sunday. No. But at the lunch table, in the break room, around the water cooler, at happy hour, after work, whatever, the gospel... Begins to bubble up outside of you because it's so prevalent inside of you. So we pick up in verse 10. That's just the intro, right? Here we go. What time is it? Whew, we got to move. So we pick up in verse 10. Paul has just said that anyone who changes this message, right? Uh, Verses 8 and 9. Anyone who changes this message of the gospel, who tries to convince you that rescue and ongoing salvation is anything other than grace alone through the work of Christ alone. In other words, Jesus plus anything else, he says, let them be accursed, right? Right? And we talked about this last week. What is Paul saying? He's saying a hex on you. Is that what Paul's saying? Like, I hope those people, they just have bad luck for the rest of their lives. Is that what Paul's saying? No. Paul is saying, let them be damned. Let them be eternally separated from God and from the work of redemption. That's what Paul is saying. And what does he say? He says, even if I get back on a ship and I come and visit you and I show up to you in person and I say anything different than what I preached to you when I was with you, then even let me be damned and eternally separated from the redemptive work of God. He goes even further. He says, even if an angel shows up, and tells you something different. Let them be damned. Right? And then he says, am I trying to please man now? Because the Judaizers were saying that Paul was, you know, he just wanted to be your friend. He, you know, he didn't want to tell you you have to cut stuff off your body in order to keep the law because you know, he knew you wouldn't like him very much at that point. And so he's just trying to be your buddy, be your friend, and, and, and so that's why he didn't say that. So Paul's like, who, who am I trying to please now? Because in other words, what he was saying, those Judaizers who are with you right now, who are going to be present when this is read aloud in the assembly of the saints together, let them be damned. That's what he's saying. Right? Like any WWF uh, fans in the house, right? Like the guy comes out and he's like, lifts up his belt and starts calling people out. I'm calling out Ed McMahon. I don't know. That's the only name I could think of. <laughs> Paul's calling them out, okay? And he's saying, let them, let them be damned. <laughs> it's not funny. This is what this means. This means that both the heart and the content of the message matter. Both the heart and the content of the message matter. One of the attitudes that is prevalent in the church today is, well, you know, I know he kind of got the content wrong, but his heart's in the right place. Or the flip side of that. Well, (laughs) he may be a jerk, but did you hear the truth that was coming out of his mouth today? Both the heart and the content matter. They matter. Both of them explicitly matter. Now, I would actually err on the side of saying that the content probably matters more than the heart. But if your content is right and your heart is wrong, then you missed the content. Because the gospel sets us free. The gospel sets us free. Which means... We, we have something to be happy about. That doesn't mean that there's not a time and a place like Paul is doing here for a strong message. That doesn't even mean that there's not a time and a place for righteous anger and indignation. I did not say that word properly, but it's all right. Indignation. Is that right? All right. sounds wrong. But the heart and the content both matter. They both matter. So when someone comes and says, well, I know what they said was, was you know, not quite right, but their heart's really in the right place. No. We don't listen to people because their heart's in the right place. What we're listening for, what we need to be reminded of, is the truth of the gospel which means there is a content that matters. Amen? Amen. Today we enter what is called the autobiography section of Galatians, and Paul is about to share his testimony with us, right? That's essentially what we read in the passage, is just true related facts of, of what has happened to Paul. But let me tell you what a real testimony is. A real testimony is a true story, we usually get that part right, usually, not always, but usually we get that part, a true story of how God brought an individual to faith in Jesus. What is your testimony? It's not how you got blessed, it's not all the great things that have happened in your life, your testimony the testimony that's being talked about in Revelation when it says, we will defeat the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That's not all the blessings you got in this life. Your tes- it's not even the healing you got. Your testimony is how that God brought you to faith in Jesus That is your testimony. And Paul's purpose in sharing his testimony is not to inspire us. That is not the purpose of this today. And if you get to the end of today, and if that's what you got from me, then I failed as your pastor this morning. Because today is not for us to look back and go, wow, Paul's testimony is so inspiring. My job is not to say, and you can have an inspiring testimony too. Do you know that your testimony has power? Let's work on our testimonies. Here's three by five cards. I want you to write down your testimony because that has power. Let me tell you what has power. The gospel has power to save lives, right? Paul said, I am not ashamed of my testimony, Is that what he said? No, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Your testimony is not going to save anyone. Your message about Jesus Christ is what can save. Amen? Amen? Now, does that mean you don't have a testimony? I hope you have a testimony. What is your testimony? How God brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, does that have specific content? Sure. Is what was going on in your life when that happened matter? Yes. It's part of your story. Paul shares part of his story here. But the reason for him sharing his story is not for us to go, oh, wow, Paul. It's for us to go, oh, wow, God. God. What a great God. What a merciful Savior. What a beautiful Lord. And that is the purpose of your testimony. Not so that people can go, Wow, Mike, how awesome are you? No, 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 no. How great is my God! So this is a short story of how Jesus made Paul his follower and why that is enough to silence the Judaizers. So verses 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now remember... Part of the Judaizers' argument is that Paul is off on his own mission, preaching his own message, something of his own creation, or that somebody else taught him, right? But Paul reminds us here where this message is coming from. It is not from man or something of his own creation. It is from Jesus himself. Now, how how great is it? How beautiful is it for Paul specifically that God didn't send some man... To meet Paul on the road to Damascus. Now, if you read the story, you can read it in Acts chapter 9, everything that happened. Brian kind of went over it a couple weeks ago. You can catch it on the podcast. But God does end up using Ananias, right? But He doesn't send Ananias to meet Paul on the road to Damascus and preach the gospel to him, does He? God chooses to reveal Jesus to Him on the spot, in person, on the road. Why is that so awesome? Because if it was anyone else, Paul would have killed them on the spot. Literally. They would have met Paul on the road. They would have said, God wants you to know that Jesus, and as soon as Paul heard that, it would have been like, just, he would have cut him down right there on the road. But Jesus himself shows up in time and space and calls Paul into a new life that is fueled... By the love and acceptance that he experiences from the very one that he was persecuting. Now, did Paul ever lay hands on Jesus? No. But what does Jesus say when he meets Paul on the road to Damascus? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? You see, Paul was not just indifferent to the gospel before his conversion. He was violently opposed. Listen to what he says, verse 13 through 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Right? Paul's not just sitting around, you know, in the city complaining about the church. Yeah, those Christian people, I don't think that's right. We shouldn't listen to them. He is on a mission, hear what he says, and tried to destroy it. He wasn't, that's not Paul playing with words. That was literally the mission that he had in his heart and his mind. I am on a mission to utterly destroy the church, the church, the whole assembly of the saints, right? Right? Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. So let's take a look at how zealous Paul was. Acts 7, 54 through verse 60. Now when they heard these things, uh, the people of the community Uh, Talking about Stephen, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Have you ever been so mad at somebody that you literally are like grinding your teeth while they're talking? That's how angry these people are at Stephen. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But the people cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. Okay, so imagine this. They're so mad, they're grinding their teeth. Like every time Stephen opens their mouth, he's like, oh, I can't I'm just grinding their teeth. And then as he's saying, look, I see heaven open. God's there. Jesus is there. They literally cover their ears. Right? Grown people cover their ears and rushed him like a QB rush on Monday night football, they rush at him okay, together and literally drag him out of the city, verse 58, and stoned him. And the witnesses, it says in verse 58, laid down their outer garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Who's Saul? It's Paul. That's what Paul was known as before he got saved, was Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, how many people think that would probably be a pretty moving thing to experience? Now... The world, at least the Christian world, has been up in arms about uh, this woman who has been imprisoned in the Middle East and then she was released and then she was back in prison. I believe she's now released again. Up in arms, right? This guy, Stephen, is literally in front of everyone in the community, drug out of the city, and stoned to death. And while he is being stoned, he's not crying out for people to stop. He's not crying out that God would rain down fire from heaven and consume his enemies. He says the very thing that Jesus said from the cross. Why? Not because Jesus said it and he was thinking, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? But because the gospel had so utterly changed and rewired his heart that the one thing that carried the most weight for him in the moment of his death was not his own safety, but were the souls of the people who were lost, who were throwing rocks at him. How moving do you think that would be? Now, we, we've heard so you ever hear the story about the the Roman centurions or the, the soldiers who were like made to strip off all their clothes. There was like 40 soldiers and they were made to march on a, a frozen lake uh, until they either denied Christ or died. Have you ever heard this story? One of the stories, I believe, from the annuals of the history of martyrs, maybe in Fox's book of martyrs. But these soldiers, these Roman soldiers who had found faith in Christ were made to march naked around a frozen lake and. The ruler, whoever was in charge, had set up baths, warm baths around the lake. And if they would simply deny Christ, they could come off the frozen lake and go into the hot tubs of water and and be saved. And these guys just marched and marched and marched. Some people say singing praises to God. And there were guards that were there, obviously, to guard them and make sure they stayed there. And when the first... Soldier died. One of the guards strips off his clothes and joins them on the lake because he was converted to faith in Jesus by the faith of this martyr who would literally march his way naked, singing, freezing to death, and never desert his Lord and Savior Jesus. Why? Because that's moving, right? You think the stoning of Stephen was maybe moving? Well, listen to what happened to Saul. The very next verse of the Bible, Acts 8, verse 1, "...and Saul approved of his execution." And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, all, uh, and they, the church, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison yeah he was moved all right his hatred for christ and for the gospel was inflamed by the martyrdom of stephen acts 9 verses 1 and 2 but paul uh, excuse me saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at damascus so that if He found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is Saul. This is Saul the zealot before he's known as Paul the apostle, filled with hatred, violently opposed to Christ, determined to destroy the Christian faith, unmoved even by the willing martyrdom of Stephen. He approved. He held the coats. He's like, hey, it's been a while since you pitched. Let me take your coat. You get a better, you 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 you'll hit him better, right? Like like, let me hold your coat. You can wind up. You can really knock the socks off a ball, off this guy. I mean, you almost wonder if Saul is standing there saying, "Coat, please, thank you. Here's your rock." Seriously. But then what happens? But then Christ shows up. Again, you can read about it, Acts 9, 1 through uh, 20 and and beyond. It's no wonder that Paul will pin the words in Romans that, quote, at just the right time, Christ died. Paul's entire life is a testimony, a testament to the at the just, at just the right time, timing of God's sovereignty. Hear what I said. Paul's entire life is a testament to the at just the right time timing of God's sovereignty. Now, wait a minute. What about an at just the right time for Stephen? What about that guy? Where was his at just the right time when he was getting rocked, literally? What about the other people that suffered at Saul's hand before his conversion? When Paul got saved, did they release them all from prison? No. Where was there at just the right time of God's sovereignty? Surely it would have been better If Christ had gotten a hold of Saul sooner than he did, surely. I mean, why didn't God get him sooner? Surely it would have been better. I don't have a whole lot of answers for you, except to take you to Job 40, verse 7 through 9. Where God addresses Job and he tells him to dress for action like a man. We got any men in the house? Anyone play baseball? Your coach ever do a cup check? That's essentially what God just said. Did you bring your cup to practice today, son? Because it's cup check. He's got this bat. He's like, let's go. Right? I'll never forget the first time that happened. There were like 3 little boys on my team that ran away. Right? They like didn't want to wear it. It's uncomfortable, you know, all that kind of thing. They like the the coach comes out with the bat, like literally like cup check ran, just ran away. God says to Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? And then God goes off on Job for like two chapters. Can you rein in the Leviathan? Can you... Put a ring in his nose? Or maybe you prefer Romans 9, 20 and 21. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump One vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Now those are hard words. Those are words that fly in the face of most evangelical preaching today. Where was Stephen's at just the right time moment? Let me tell you. At just the right time, Stephen heard and responded to the gospel because God made him a follower of Jesus. And his salvation was not about him being saved from being stoned. His salvation was about him being rescued from sin and death because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on his behalf. And when he saw heaven opened and God standing there and the Son of Man standing next to him, that was them welcoming him home. Because this earth is not our home. We are aliens in this land, sojourners on our way to a new land that God has prepared for us. So what does Paul say about God's timing? Does Paul lament and say, man, I, you know, I really wish God would have saved me sooner? That John guy, he had it easy. What was he, like 12 On the fishing boat when Jesus saved him? Verse 15 through 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. You see, Paul seems to think that God got him before he was even born. So how about that for your theology? Why didn't God get him sooner? Well, maybe he did. Maybe he got him sooner than you think. Maybe he got you sooner than you think. What was that? Before the foundations of the earth. So God got him in the beginning. But what does it say? It says he was pleased to reveal his son to me when he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Right. Isn't that what he's saying? Verse 15. But when and then he has this other stuff about when I was born, call me by his grace. But when he was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now, there are those of you in this room today that you have gone through the crud of life. And there are things that you have gone through that to this day you carry with you, you struggle with, you battle day in and day out. And sometimes you wonder, why didn't God get me sooner? Why why didn't he get me sooner? Couldn't he have saved me from all of this pain and all of this suffering? Couldn't he have saved my family members or my friends from all the pain and the suffering that I caused them? Why didn't God get me sooner? Well, let me tell you something. He got you sooner than you think. Because he chose you before the foundations of the earth. But he revealed himself to you when he was pleased to do so. And you are the lump of clay, not the potter. And what that means is that the God of redemption has a plan to redeem Even the crud of life that you walked through before you came to faith in Christ. Even the crud of life that you've walked through since you came to faith in Christ. The God of redemption has a plan to redeem even that. And to reconcile. To reconcile. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this section of the chapter in his book, Galatians for you. As Paul looks back, he can now recognize that God's sovereign grace was working in his life long before his actual conversion. When Paul says, God set me apart from birth, he means that the grace of God had been shaping and preparing him all of his life for the things God was going to call him to do. This is astonishing. Paul had been resisting God and doing so much wrong, but God was overruling all his intentions and using his experiences and even his failures to prepare him for his conversion and then to be a preacher to the Gentiles. And then listen to Paul's reasoning. Why? When he was pleased to do so, what does this mean? It means it was for God's own pleasure. The whole thing... All of this is about the glory and pleasure of a great and sovereign God. What we think is good, hear me, what we think is good, even now, even as believers, what we think is good is still marred and broken and filtered through our own sinful nature and desires. And so it's easy for us to sit back and say, God, why? Because our version of good doesn't necessarily line up with God's version of good. And when we have that God why on our hearts, that's what's happening in our hearts. Is we're trying to come to terms with what we think is good and obviously what God thinks is good. And God's glory and pleasure, whatever that happens to be, is our greatest good. Now, I am not saying that God's glory is directed at what you think is good for you, but rather that what in the end proves to be for God's glory and His pleasure will ultimately be for your greatest good. You see the twist there? You see the twist we so often fall into? Well, you know, brother, God causes all things to work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Yes, yes, he he does. He causes all things to work together for the good. That means that at the end of the day, when the sum total of everything is added up and you draw a line and you get the answer, the end of of the day, that answer will always be God's glory and His pleasure. And His glory and His pleasure is ultimately your good. That verse doesn't mean you get everything you ever wanted. That's not what it means. It means you get what is, God's, what is for God's glory. And for his pleasure, which will be your greatest good. Don't hear me wrong. For Stephen, that meant stoning. No, Pastor, you cannot mean that. I mean it. I don't understand it. I'm not volunteering. But you you want to try and tell me that. That wasn't in God's plan? I mean, heaven opened up and God the Father and God the Son are standing there to welcome Stephen home. You want to tell me that wasn't the plan? That they just opened up to check down and go, oh, whoa, Stephen, you're coming home already? What? No. No, wait. I didn't have, I didn't have it ready yet. What? We got a vacuum. For Stephen, that meant stoning. For Paul, that meant a full life of suffering. For Peter, it meant hanging upside down on a cross. Now, I tried. I racked my brain to try and think of somebody in the New Testament that that actually meant wealth and prosperity and all of these things for. You know what? I couldn't think of anyone. I tried. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's not in the New Testament. It's certainly not there as an example. I tried. I was like, man, this feels kind of depressing. You know, Stephen, it's, you know, stoning. Paul, it's suffering. Peter's hanging upside down. I got to find somebody that, you know, went out with the bang. I got nothing for you. Why? Because our version of good and God's version of good are two different things. We cry out for blessing and God blesses. But do we cry out for God's pleasure? Do we cry out for God's glory to be known in our lives? For one, God's pleasure might mean poverty. Would you be poor for Christ's sake? Not to glory in your poverty. Look at me, I'm suffering for Christ brother, dude, we got lots of money. Can we give you some groceries? No, no. I'm suffering for Christ. Dude, we just sold our house. We've got lots of extra money. We're buying this property. We have a house, an extra house on this new property. Why don't you and your wife, your family, come move into our house? God provided for us, man. We believe he's providing for you too. Come move in. Rent free. You just stay you, as long as you need. No, I'm, I'm suffering for Christ. Dude, we're going out to lunch. You want to come? on by? buying. No, no. It's beans and rice for my family tonight. We're suffering for Christ. It's not what I'm talking about. But would you be poor for Christ's sake if it meant that was his glory and his pleasure and you knew that that ultimately meant your good? I mean, even let's just remove the good from the scenario. Let's put it this way. You're poor, but you get Jesus. Is it enough? Would you be rich for Christ's sake? Because for some, maybe, I'm just saying, I didn't find it here, but let's just go out there. Maybe it is possible you could be rich for Christ's sake, and I believe that you can. Would you be rich for Christ's sake? Because there are some people on the other end of the spectrum. Because what happens? The poor people look at the rich people and they look down their noses at them. And the rich people look at the poor people and they look down their noses at them. There's kind of this weird thing that's going on, like Republican, Democrat. I just want to be independent, like right in the middle. Because you may think it may be a sin to be rich, and it's not. And to you, I'd say, would you be rich for Christ's sake? Would you give up poverty? Everyone's like, yes, I would. I I volunteer for this one. Maybe that's why we can't find it in the New Testament, okay? (laughs) But would you be rich for Christ's sake, not to glory in your prosperity, to say, see how God loves me so much, but rather, whatever is for your glory, Lord, What I have is not my own. I am a steward of everything that you have placed in my hands. It's not mine. It's yours. For your glory and your pleasure, which I know is ultimately my good. Would you take the back seat? Would you come forward and teach? Would you step out of the limelight? Would you step into the limelight? If that's what God was calling you to do. It's not about your position, but rather the posture of your heart. It's not about how much treasure you have, but rather what is the treasure of your heart. For Paul, none of this mattered. That's why later he would say, I have found in all things to be content. Why? Why? Because the God who chose him before he was born was pleased to reveal his son to him. And Jesus became the treasure of Paul's heart. The word glory in Hebrew is kabod. It literally means weight. On the scale of Paul's heart, Jesus tipped the scale against everything else. Jesus carried more kabod, more weight. For Paul than anything. Why? Only grace. Again, from Tim Keller's book, he says, God set his loving grace on Paul, not because he was worthy of it, but simply because God took delight or pleasure in doing so. This is how God has always worked. As Moses tells God's people, Israel, in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. God does not love because we are serviceable. He loves us simply because he loves us. And this is the only kind of love that we can ever be secure in. Of course, because it is the only kind of love that we cannot possibly lose. This is grace. This is the grace of God in Christ. He put skin in the game and he made it personal. Paul is not sharing all of this to say, hey, look at me. See, see how good I did? See how much God loves me? He chose me. He is saying, are you kidding? God chose me. Chose me. I don't deserve it. I was trying to destroy the very thing that Jesus said he came to build. How can this be? Paul could quote Psalm 27.1, which is on your listening guide this morning, with truth and honesty The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? You see, the gospel sets us free from trying to please man. The gospel sets us free from trying to have to find our way around in the darkness because the gospel delivers Jesus to us as our light and our salvation, as our stronghold. And here the key in this. David's not saying the Lord is light and the Lord is salvation. What does it say? It says the Lord is what? The Lord is what? Anyone? It's on your listening guide. You all got one. The Lord is what? My light. The Lord is what? My salvation. God puts skin in the game. This is personal. This is a personal Savior. This is a relational gospel. The same grace that Paul is reveling in is available to you today. And whether it is for the first time or the one millionth time come and swim in the ocean of grace that is available to you. This is not just about head knowledge. And Paul's testimony is not just about relating facts of his life. It's about saying there is a great and a glorious and a gracious God who is full of tender loving kindness who leads us to repentance. He led me to repentance even though I was violently opposed. He chose me before the foundations of the earth and at the right time when it was his pleasure he revealed his son to me and he can do the same for you let us not forget that we are both cognitive and emotional to varying degrees some more on one side than the other but all of us carrying both cognitive and emotional value in our lives none of us completely devoid of the other Our minds not only need to be informed, but our hearts need to be inflamed. And this preaching today must not only bring information, but inflammation to say what a great and a mighty God we serve. How beautiful is His name. How beautiful is this gospel in which we have been saved. How wonderful is this Jesus who has been revealed to us. Though we are great sinners violently posed or completely indifferent. He has melted our hearts like wax and is molding us into new vessels for his glory and his pleasure. And we say, let your will be done in us, O Lord of glory.